before I move into today's message, let me just share with you so you might could be reading ahead what the next sermon series will be on. I'm going to start that the first Sunday of next month. We're going to uh, do a study of the last three historical books in the Old Testament. That would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then we're also going to include the prophets that ministered in that historical period. And that's the last three prophets uh, that are listed in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So that will be our study beginning in February. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther weaving the prophets into that narrative at the appropriate uh, places. And uh, I, tr- I believe that's going to be a very, very meaningful study. And they're just tremendous lessons about uh, how to be restored in your relationship with God, about the uh, faithfulness of God to keep His promises, His preservation of His uh, people, how to uh, unite together as a family of believers to accomplish God's work to overcome opposition, and uh, I, I, I trust God is going to use it in a wonderful, uh, wonderful way. Uh, but this morning, uh, I, the title of the uh, message is simply Celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, the practice of our church family is to observe the Lord's Supper once every month, and we normally do that on the first Sunday of each month. But since we were coming off the holidays last Sunday, we thought it would be best to observe the Lord's Supper uh, today. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes, the introduction in your sermon notes. As we come to our first observance of the Lord's Supper in the new year, let's be reminded of the five biblical purposes in observing the Lord's Supper. Now, these five purposes are something that I have emphasized from the beginning of my ministry here at Edgewood, but I believe it is good uh, to review them here at the first of the year. So look with me now at the very first purpose in observing the Lord's Supper, which, of course, is the primary purpose in observing the Lord's Supper. We are to look back to remember what Jesus accomplished for us through His death, burial, and resurrection, and as we do, partake in the Lord's Supper with celebrating hearts. This should be a time of celebration, a time of celebrating God's grace, His glory, His love uh, that He's extended uh, to us. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And we see this first purpose clearly in verses 23 through 25. So you follow along in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul uh, giving instructions to the church at Corinth. And he says, For I have received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's very clear to see that in this passage, uh, Paul is recalling when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his 12 disciples in that Passover feast, the night he was betrayed by Judas, which of course led to his crucifixion the very next day. Notice the focus is on the repeated command of Christ, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, it is very, very important. Now, listen very carefully right here. It's important to realize that the concept of remembering to the Hebrew mind meant much more than simply recalling something that happened in the future. It meant to recapture in the mind's eye and in one's affections, uh, the reality, the significance of a person or situation as, as, as much as possibly could be done. So Jesus basically asked us here to ponder, to deliberately ponder the meaning of his life, the meaning of his death on our behalf. You can participate in the Lord's Supper, but if your thoughts and your affections are not placed on Christ, you have not truly remembered the Lord. You're just going through a ritual. You're just going through a ceremony. Therefore, when we observe the Lord's Supper, the first thing we are to do, the very first thing we are to do in a very deliberate way is to envision what Christ did for us and then respond to that with heartfelt appreciation and adoration. In other words, as we remember, as we envision, as we ponder his life and death, that should ignite within us an emotional response. Our affections should be moved in adoration towards him. Our, our wills should be moved to give our allegiance to him because we realize what he did, he did on our behalf, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and now lives for us. Uh, now, to help us do that, uh, as you know, we are given two elements uh, to partake of in the Lord's Supper. So look at the first bullet point there in your notes. When we share the Lord's Supper, we are offered two elements. The first is the bread which represents the body of Jesus sacrificed for us. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he said, referring to the bread, this is my body, which is, and don't miss these next two words, for you. This is my body, his body that was sacrificed. It is for you. And in those words, Christ is emphasizing that everything he did, he did for you. Why did he leave heaven and come to this, earth, to this earth as a man? For you. Why was he subjected to mockery and rejection by people who plotted his death? For you. Why did he go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he poured out his heart in anguish and resolved, not my will but thine be done for you? 
Why did he suffer brutal treatment at the hands of the religious leaders, at the hands of the Roman soldiers for you? Why was he scourged, whipped, his flesh literally stripped to shreds, bringing right up to the point of death? He did it for you. Why did he die for you? Why did he rise again for you? The point is, and you can't miss it, Again, you are to personalize the sacrifice of Christ's body when we come to this observance. You are to personalize it and what it meant for you. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took the punishment we deserve, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When Jesus died on that cross, all your sins, all that you are was placed on him And he took your punishment for you. And it's so important to personalize that. Even in reading something like these verses. Make them personal. Read them this way. He was pierced through for my transgression, for Andy's transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. He took the punishment I deserved. And by his scourging, I, Andy, am healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. But the Lord calls my iniquity to fall on him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Notice, and he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? That he might die to sin and live, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You have a shepherd today. You have a guardian today that watches over you, that guides you, that protects you, that provides for you. And that was only made possible because of what Jesus did for you in his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. Go to the second bullet point in your notes. The second element in the Lord's Supper, of course, is the juice, which represents what? The blood of Jesus. Blood is synonymous with life in the Bible. We read in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. In contrast, the shedding of blood represents death. Notice Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Greek preposition translated in can be translated at the cost of. Jesus was saying the cup symbolizes the new relationship that I have, that you have with him, and it cost him his blood. It cost him his very life. My forgiveness cost him his life. For him to be able to dwell within my heart cost him his life as he shed his blood. Look at Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that why we were what, what? Sinners at our worst, 
undeserving of his grace, undeserving of his mercy and love. Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, that sin debt being canceled out by his death on Calvary's cross. We shall be saved from the wrath from very hell itself through him. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. His blood not only forgave me of my sin, but his blood purchased me as his possession, as his treasured possession that he loves, that he values, that he cares for. He is my guardian. He is my shepherd because of what he did for me in shedding his blood. Uh, Look at Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 reads, remember, remember, remember. There's that word again, that that, uh, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. In this verse, we discover what we were before God saved us. We were what? Without Christ. We were without a home, without promises, without hope, without God. Then we discover in verse 13 what God did. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Of Christ, we've been brought into a relationship with Almighty, Holy God Himself. I think of Hebrews 10, 19. It talks about we have confidence, we have boldness, we have the freedom to go right into the presence of a holy God. Why? Through His blood. Not through my efforts, not through my performance, but through Christ's finished work. We must never forget what it cost Jesus to bridge the gap between God and man, to save us from eternal damnation in hell and to secure for us an eternal relationship with God. Jesus said, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first purpose in the Lord's Supper is to look back, to remember what Jesus accomplished for us through his death burial and resurrection, and then partake with a celebrating heart that just overflows with gratitude and adoration for him. Look at the second purpose in observing the Lord's Supper. We are to look forward to direct our focus on the return of Jesus and partake in the Lord's Supper with confident hearts. Look in your Bibles, again, at 1 Corinthians 11. Look now at verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we not only focus on what Jesus accomplished for us in the past, we also rejoice in what awaits us in the future. Look at the next two verses in your notes. First, Revelation 11, verse 14. And the seventh angel sounded. This is the end of the tribulation. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. When Jesus returns, he will defeat all of God's enemies. He will defeat the enemies of all of God's people. And he will establish his rule over this earth. And our destiny 
Our destiny, the children of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, is to reign with Jesus as his bride. Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the church, his queen. We will be his helpmate throughout all eternity. What a precious thought. We will be at his side assisting him in administrating the affairs of this earth, of his government that now has been placed on his shoulders. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope or this confidence fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, to put this in very simple terms, there is a day coming when the bride, the church, will become so lost in the groom's presence, we will be found in his likeness forever. We know the outcome of it all. And we not only know the outcome, we know because of what the outcome is, we have the confidence, we have the hope, we have the assurance that everything that happens today is ultimately for my good, the church's benefit, to prepare us for our eternal destiny, to make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it even gets better. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we not only look back, to celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us, we not only look forward with confidence to all the glorious realities that await us, but look at the third point in your notes. We are to look within, within ourselves, to refresh ourselves in Jesus as a present reality and partake in the Lord's Supper with committed hearts, hearts committed to Him. Turn to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 reads, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ and all that it effected? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ and all that he did for us? Jesus is here this morning. Jesus is the host of this table. I'm not the host. These elders and deacons are not the host. We're merely here to assist him in serving you. But ultimately, he is the host. And he's not only the host of this table, he has taken up residence in your heart if you are a child of God. And no matter what, listen now, no matter what you are facing this morning, you already possess everything you need in Jesus. You lack nothing. It's just a matter of appropriating it through faith. Look at Colossians 1.27. Christ, what? In you, the hope of glory. Look at Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And we can add shepherd and guardian. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And then Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell comfortably in your hearts. You know, this gives me the opportunity to remind you of the challenge that I issued last Sunday. Remember the challenge? 
I ask you to commit yourself to pray two prayers every day in 2020. And both of these prayers are found in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians first uh, chapter and then the third uh, chapter. And the heart of these prayers is that our eyes would be open to, to the glories that we possess in Christ Jesus. That first prayer, God, grant us that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. God, open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten our eyes, that we can see, and not just see, but experience what is the hope of our calling in Christ as a family of believers. We've been called to be the body of Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked. We've been called to be the bride of Christ, to love him as he ought to be loved. We've been called to be a holy dwelling place for God, where he can dwell comfortably in us, where Jesus will know no rival, there'll be no refusal of Christ, no retreat from what he's asked us to do. And not only that he would open our eyes to see the hope of our calling, but he would open our eyes to see the riches of his glory that he has deposited in us. And that he would teach us to appropriate those riches, that we might be about his business, to fulfill his calling. And then he prays, God, open their eyes, open their eyes to see the power that's in them, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in them to enable them to grow in Christ and to walk in newness of life and to be my witness. And then you go to Ephesians 3. God, grant us, grant us as a church family according to the riches of your glory. Again, we're back to the riches of his glory that's been deposited in us. Grant us according to the riches of your, to, to what? To be strengthened with power. Where? In the what? Inner man. Why? So that Christ might dwell comfortably in us. And then being rooted and grounded. And notice... That's stated as a fact. If you're a believer, you have been rooted. You have been grounded in his love. A love that nothing can sever you from. A love that nothing can uproot you from. And he says, oh God, open our eyes that we would know that love, experience that love, enjoy that love together as a family of believers. To know the length, depth, breadth, and height of that love. To love one another and to love a lost world as Christ loved us and as Christ loved a lost world. And then fill us with your fullness. Remove everything from our stinking lives that's not like Jesus and fill us with Christ that wherever we are, Jesus is exalted. Jesus is magnified. Oh God, raises up to be your telescope to make, bring Christ up close and personal to every person that sees him as some remote figure in history that has no impact on today. Oh God, uses as your microscope to show the greatness and the magnificence and the bigness of Christ to those who seem as small and insignificant. And then how does that prayer close? Now. Now unto him who is what? Who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything we could ever ask, hope, or pray for. And he's not talking about what he's going to do out there. He's talking about what he's going to do in here. Amen. To fashion Christ in us that he might be put on display through us and do this for the glory of your Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, I issue that same challenge. If you miss it one day, don't, get, don't fall into condemnation. Just get back to it the next day. But pray those prayers with 
grateful hearts. Move now to the fourth purpose in the Lord's Supper. We're to look up. To re-examine our lives in the light of God's holiness and partake in the Lord's Supper with clean hearts. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For, if, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Circle that word body. You know what he's referring to there to? The body of Christ. One of the main ways we eat this meal in an unworthy fashion is when we don't love and care for one another in the body of Christ. When we become critical of one another. When I think my opinion is the only right way to go. And where we become jealous and where we compete and where we become argumentative. Because from God's perspective, it's like we're crucifying the body of Christ all over again. Tearing him up because we are his bride. And yes, of course, we eat it unworthily if there's known sin in our lives and we're walking in that sin and we're unwilling to confess and forsake that sin. Verse 30, for this reason, this is a serious matter. Many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's referring to death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. He says, you have an opportunity to examine yourself, to put yourself in the light of my holiness to confess your sin, to know my forgiveness. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As referring, if we walk in honesty, if we walk in transparency, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then look at Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find what? Compassion. Look at the fifth and the final purpose in observing the Lord's Supper. We are to look around to renew our relationships with one another and partake in the Lord's Supper with caring hearts. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 17 in your Bibles. Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And then look, we'll turn over to chapter 11, verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That could actually have been tra translated, serve one another. Care for one another. Be tender, be sensitive to one another. Something, if don't have the time, but I can clearly show you, is one of the grave errors that the Corinthian church was making where they were not caring for the poor in their midst. They were showing favoritism. 
and they were being judged for that. And then that last, uh, well, 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and therefore we ought to what? Lay down our lives for the brethren. And then look at that last scripture before we go into the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus, the night he instituted the Lord's Supper. You remember the scene. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And then do you remember the, the disciples' response? He's just focused on the fact that he's about to go to Calvary's cross as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where the stress and the anguish he's experiencing is so great that he, swept, he sweats blood, uh, blood from his pores. And what, what's the response of the disciples? They get in a dispute over who's the greatest among them. Who's the smartest? Who's the wisest? Whose opinion should carry the day? So here they are, they're arguing. Savior's just opened up his heart about what he's just about to do in giving his life for the sins of humanity. He doesn't say a word, he just gets up. And he takes a basin of water, takes a towel, and he washes their feet. The most lowly, menial task that anyone could ever do. This was a task that was relegated to the lowest of slaves and servants. And then this is what Jesus said after he did it. He says... Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And this is why at the end of a Lord's Supper service, we always provide opportunity for you to minister to one another, to pray for one another, to express appreciation to one another, to encourage, to comfort one another. We believe this is a very vital, important aspect of the Lord's Supper that should not be neglected. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, I trust this will be a good reminder that we're to right now celebrate as we remember Jesus and what he did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We're to come to this table with confident hearts, knowing that our Lord is on the throne, he's in control, and one day he's going to return and make all things right, and we will reign and rule with him at his side as his eternal helpmate. And yes, I'm to look within. He's with me. Whatever I need, he is. And he's prepared to meet that need through the sufficiency of his grace. But we are to examine ourselves. This is a holy time. How dare we partake of this knowingly, knowingly, and not willing to confess and fake sin that he went to the cross for, that he died for. And then we're to come with caring hearts to love one another. Let me ask the men to go ahead and take their positions.